Christ, you will discover the true greatness of your own humanity. Yeah, so it's just awesome to see everyone here. I don't know if, can you guys hear me? I hope so. Um, yeah, so it's awesome to be here for our third episode of The Power of Personhood. It's awesome to see a full house here in Center City, Philadelphia. I went to school here, so uh, at Temple University. Any, any owls in the building? Yeah, nice. Uh, so yeah, it is always exciting to come back to Philly. Um, and tonight, I'm super excited. We have some awesome guests here tonight. So first, I'll introduce Sister Maeve Natiti. Not, guys, I practice this for like 30, 30 days. I said it every day because I didn't want to mess it up, and I'm messing it up now. Sister Maeve Nativitas. I... Yeah, so Sister Maeve is part of the Sisters of Life. Can we get a, woo! Yeah. Um, she lives in Philly at St. Malachi's Parish, um, and they have so many different ministries that are going on, um, ministry, college ministry, but also ministry to pregnant women, to, to women who are um, experiencing the trauma from post-abortion, um, and many, many, many other things. Um, and she also loves philosophy. So um, we're really excited to have her here. So thank you, Sister May, for being here. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Kind of feel like I'm the big ocean of mercy in this blue chair. Nice. <laughs> well, there's more room in that ocean of mercy. We're going to introduce Rishara. Rishara Krajewski. She's technically a Jersey girl, but 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 is a Manny Young Philly girl at heart. And so she works at St. Mal no, St. Raymond's Parish um, in Philadelphia. Um, and, and she basically does everything, other than obviously <laughs> Father Chris, who is the pastor there. Father Chris, are you here? Yeah. Yes, thank you, Father Chris. So other than all those kind of things, <laughs> Rashara does a little bit of everything at the parish, a catechist. Uh, she also does a lot of leadership seminars. And so we're just so excited to have you, both of you guys here today. Um, maybe just so that we could get to know you. Sister Maeve, what's the story behind the name? behind my name. The one, one that I, I practiced for 30 yeah, days yeah. and still got wrong. When I just wanted to hear people try to say it. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, so, so actually Maeve was my baptismal name. And when I entered religious life, I told my mom, you know, I just, I got to change it. Sorry. <laughs> and because, uh, you know, I wanted to become this whole new person and leave the old Maeve behind. And then I came to realize that God loves me as I am and that he loves me into the fullness of who he created me to be. And so Maeve, actually, it's, um, so in my heart, it's a combination of Mary and Eve. So it's M-A for Our Lady, and then Eve. Wow. And we are as Eve in our brokenness, and yet loved and um, desired, God desires to transform us into Mary, into a fiat of love um, with him. So that was the Maeve. And it actually means cause of joy, which I found out later. Wow. And so Mary is Eve's cause of joy in bringing her salvation and her into the fullness of her humanity. And then the nativita, nativitas, see, even I have trouble. Yeah. <laughs> the nativitas is, um, yeah, this, this, the holy family is there, and, but they're hidden, as they always are, and they create this space through their love and through their yes and their fidelity for the incarnation. And so us embracing, not being afraid of our poverty, but embracing it and offering it with love creates a space um, for God to become incarnate in our hearts. And then we can bring him as light into the world. Nice. And this beautiful Sisters of Life habit, is there a story there too? This is why I chose this community. <laughs> Just kidding. For the habit. Nice. <laughs> now the, the habit, oh, to my becoming a sister? Yeah. Um, yeah, so I always grew up uh, in a Catholic home, but really in a deep way claimed my relationship with Jesus in college. And um, I went on a walk. So we walked from Maine to DC. It's about 1,100 miles. And we spoke to people on the streets. At first, it was about building a culture of life, but you'll soon realize that um, 
a really authentic culture of life is rooted in an authentic culture of um, being Catholic. So we had a lot of conversations about the church and, uh, and it was just an amazing experience. So we prayed the rosary or four rosaries daily, Divine Mercy Chaplet, the um, office, daily mass, confession, lived in communities, slept on floors, in cars, had um, peanut butter and marshmallow fluff, anybody? <laughs> As our daily diet <laughs> and pizza. <laughs> Good old days and you could do that and um, so they're just in prayer um, and in doing something radical with my love I met in a new way the radical love of Jesus and that's where I discern my vocation and I would um, pray outside of abortion clinics and see the sorrow the deep sorrow of the women going in and then coming out and so just this deep desire in my heart to speak God's love to every human person um, inspired the vocation to religious life and then specifically to the charism of life, which um, we take a fourth vow to protect and enhance the sacredness of human life. Basically, we get to tell everybody that they're awesome. Nice. That's so beautiful, sister. Mm -hmm. You're awesome. Thanks. <laughs> and Rishara. Rishara Krajewski. Did I say it right? Krajewski. Oh, man. I knew I would get it wrong. So, <laughs> so there might be a story behind that name, too? Yeah, sure. So my name story isn't anything as fancy as sisters. When my mom was pregnant, she got bad information. She was told she was having a boy. So she had boys' names picked out. And then I was born. And then my mom went, oh, my goodness, she has a big forehead. She needs bows for the rest of her life. And she was blessed to have aunts who were present. And my grandfather had just passed away. And folks just went, you know what? Why don't you just name the girl Rashara? And my mom said, oh, okay, she's Rashara then. <laughs> so I ended up with this name that's probably one of the most unique names and most mispronounced names in the history of all names. But I've owned it, and I love it. And the Krieski I got by marriage, so that's a pretty simple one. Nice. And I hear that St. Raymond's is an African-American Catholic parish. Sure. So, so that's what some people call us. Yeah, we are a Roman Catholic church, and we're Catholic in all the ways that one can be Catholic. Um, but our parish is a predominantly African-American parish, but we have folks from all different parts of the world worshiping with us, all different parts of Africa and the Caribbean. And so we're a pretty unique and diverse community overall. And I am not uh, someone who grew up Catholic, and so my entry into the St. Raymond community was really new and invigorating because I knew there were black Christians, but before St. Raymond, I had never met a single black Catholic. And so that was a, a bit of a culture shock for me, um, but certainly one that was uh, transformative in many ways. That's awesome. Yeah, and, and, and we hear that you and Father Chris are quite a tandem up in St. Raymond, so we're excited for you, both of you guys to be here, Sister May Rashara, talking about personhood, this kind of word that is largely unknown to us. Um, you know, for people who probably study philosophy, theology, this word is all over the place, um, especially St. John Paul II. This was one of his major themes. Um, Sister Mava is someone who has, is kind of a philosophy geek. Um, kind of a technical question is, you know, when we think of the human person, when we think of, you know, what's at the core, what's at the essence of a human person, you know, the reality is that from this second to this second, I've changed. So if my body is changed, then, then what's, at, what's really at the core? What's at the essence of the human person? Bringing me back to my old days. Um, I studied a lot of Aristotle and St. Thomas, and they would both say that the essence of a thing, like what it um, gives it what it's, um, its isness, to use a technical term <laughs> that they actually use. Um, so it, the essence is what makes a thing what it is. And if you look at nature, it's distinguished according to its species um, with what's unique to it, right? So an apple tree bears apples, a flower blossoms, a dog does doggy things. So each thing has um, something that's unique to it. And uh, that uniqueness kind of helps to color everything else about it. And so Aristotle would talk about four causes that go into 
um, the essence, and that's its material cause, you know, so what it's the matter that it's made of. It's a formal cause, so it gives it its structure. And then he would also talk about the efficient cause, so that's an outside agent that creates it, so to speak, and, and then its final cause, so that's what it's meant for, its end. You know, so for the apple tree, it's uh, to give apples and then to proliferate. So just to recap, material cause? Material cause, formal cause, efficient cause, and final cause. Okay, cool. And the human person, so what's unique about the human person um, in, in the material world, the human person alone has the capacity to reason and the capacity to choose free will. Right? And what do those two things combine? The reason which seeks truth and the will which seeks goodness, uh, when that flourishes, you have love. And so the human person at its very core is, is made for love. And, um, and that's why, as John Paul II would say, human prisons are never to be treated as objects for one's own personal means, but always as a person to be loved. Because we are made uh, for love and from love. And the problem, I think, with today's culture is that we have forgotten our efficient cause and our final cause. So we've forgotten from where we come from and uh, to whom we are going, where we are going. We were each... Uh, before we were ever um, breathing or smiling or making jokes or sitting next to each other, before we were even in our mother's wombs, we were each a thought in the mind and heart of God. Each one of you. From before time ever began, you were a thought in the mind of God. And God so delighted in this thought that at a moment in history predestined before the foundations of the world, he willed you to exist. He delighted in this thought so much that he loved it into being. So there was a moment when there was nothing, and then he spoke, and there you were. And that is awesome. And he, in creating you with an eternal soul, he stamped a promise into your very being. What is that promise? Each of us only exists because God is loving us right now. If God stopped thinking about you, you would cease to exist. So how do I know that God loves me? I am here. Now God gave you an eternal soul. So that means he is going to love you eternally. You cannot lose that love. We can reject it. But we cannot, we cannot lose it. His love is eternal, it's a promise, and it is ours. We have forgotten that. And so that has led to a rejection of ourselves and a rejection of each other. In creating us from love, he has also created us for love. And this is the final cause, right? And so we have forgotten that actually we're made for greatness. I have a little nephew, he's um, Kieran, he's five. And I like, as a philosopher, I like to cultivate that when they're young. <laughs> and I, uh, I asked him, so, how's life? And he goes, well, it's good and it's bad. I was like, all right. <laughs> he's homeschooled. So then I said, why is it good and it's bad? He said, well, sometimes I'm bad Sometimes I'm good, but I want to be good for the world. In our very deepest desires, we know that we are made as a blessing. We are made to be a blessing to this world, that there's a goodness in us that we've been entrusted with, and we want to bring this goodness into the world. But all of the fears of having lost our identity of where we come from have led us to act in a way that's actually contrary, can act, lead us to act in a way that's contrary to this because we believe we have to prove ourselves. We have to earn our identity. And, um, and then this has led to protective walls and fears and, and a, a grasping at um, that actually prevents the flourishing of the human person and leads to all sorts of confusion. So really the crisis in faith has led to a crisis in identity and the identity of the dignity and the sacredness of our human 
worth, our human dignity, which is actually awesome. It's awesome. Yeah, it's like when we when we give our gifts, when we give the gift of ourselves to other, we feel so alive. Like we feel so much more of who we were meant to be. But when this identity is lost, it goes into like there's so many other things that end up measuring us. Um, and when I don't have a sense of myself, then it's what are my test scores? You know, like did I do well in school? Uh, you know, what's my salary like? Um, you know, and, and so what ends up happening is that it becomes so production and results oriented and we totally forget about like who we are at the core, what gives us this sense of self. Like what do you think is problematic, Rashara, like with such a worldview where we measure one's value based on results and production? Yeah, I actually, as sister spoke, I thought about myself in my moment in high school when I decided that I was gonna find an identity as an intellectual. So I uh, studied a gazillion languages, I applied to a bunch of schools, um, I did really great in college and did, um, decided I was gonna get a PhD. And so I, I went to, you know, I applied to a gazillion schools, I ended up selecting the University of Pennsylvania. And I remember thinking, finally, I'm gonna be somebody, right? Because I can now translate all the romance languages and you know, I'm one of the younger people in my class and oh my goodness, I can write really fast. I can read 1,000 pages in two days, which is really, really difficult to do. That's impressive. That is, right? <laughs> um, and so I had this sense of somebodiness, right, that came from that. And so I, I embarked on my program. I did fine, um, but something happened in my personal life when I had a, my mom got sick, right? And so all of a sudden, right, the somebodiness that really made me feel like I, I finally proved, right, that I was smart, that I was intelligent, that I was worth something, it was completely turned upside down, right? Because now I was not able to perform as well. I wasn't able to produce as many articles. I simply wasn't able. And I remember having a moment when I was staying up all night praying and asking the Lord, Okay, Lord, I worked really hard. I stayed up in undergrad probably every single night for four years to make sure I had this crazy GPA. And now it looks like all of that has come to naught. And so who am I now? And I remember just being in my bed in the middle of the night, tossing and turning and looking at my phone to see who I could text, but nobody because it was really too late. And then I just felt the Lord saying to me, like, you are more than just your brain. You're more than just your GPA. You're more than just a really well-reviewed article. And I just experienced so much healing around that. And I think so many of us, especially those of you who are here, right, who are likely studying amazing things that are going to transform the world, it's tempting to root your identity in that and say, I'm, I'm somebody, right, because I'm going to be a doctor. I'm somebody because I'm going to have a PhD and a JD, right, or whatever great combinations of doctoral degrees you can do now. But ultimately, we know that those things are fleeting, right? Because anything could happen, right? Anything could happen. And then at the end of the day, who are we, right? We are somebody who is made to love God, to be known by God, and to, and to return that love to God. So I think that's, um, I don't know, just, yeah. yeah. It, it's interesting. Today's the feast of St. John the Baptist, and he's somebody with somebodiness who, like, one of the few people in the Bible that we actually recognize even before he ever was born, right? Because we read this passage where Mary visits Elizabeth and the infant leap, leapt, John leapt within the womb of his mother Elizabeth just at the mere presence of Jesus Christ. And so, you, you know, we see how, especially with the unborn person, right, it's so easy to get caught up in, you know, does this person actually produce? You know, does this actual person produce results? And if they don't, you know, do they matter, right? As, as both people who accompany pregnant women on difficult journeys of, of making such decisions, you know, how do you guys kind of, what do you say to them? How, how, how do you go through this? Yeah, it's, um, we always recognize that anybody who is uh, encountering a difficult pregnancy, there's a lot of fear, 
there's a lot of fear that's driving them. And so it can, fear can often confuse us and can confuse our decisions. And so basically it's trying to open their hearts to receive first themselves as a gift, um, that they are loved because when you know that your life is good and that it's worth living, then you can believe it of the child within you. And then it's, um, yeah, it's like John the Baptist, he became a blessing to his mother even from the womb because he is the one that announced to her, really, uh, through, through his receptivity as Mary's voice, of the presence of Jesus. And so what we've seen is that a woman, when she has the capacity to say yes to her child, um, that child, by its very being, is blessing, is gift, as we were talking about before, where each of us is made to be a blessing in, in this world. That actually begins even in, the, even in the womb. From the very moment of our conception, we are a blessing. I remember this one woman we worked with, she was... Um, She's being pressured uh, to not keep her baby to have an abortion by the father baby because um, of the terrible circumstances. And he was offering her thousands of dollars, actually, to have an abortion. And she was in torment, I mean torment, for so many different reasons. Um, and watching her go through the struggle was very difficult. Um, but we just loved her. And in that being loved, she discovered her own capacity to love, and she chose life. And I remember we were standing around the kitchen table and she said, for the first time in my life, I feel like a powerful woman, right? And that, that capacity to receive the gift of another is uh, what brings us to life. And she received so much healing. And so every child, right, every child is willed for the child's own sake. Every child was a thought in the mind of God. He delighted in that thought, and he loved that child into existence, into eternity. Um, but also, every child is entrusted to a particular mother for a particular reason. And God wants that child to be that, the child of that mother um, because he wants to bless the mother through mm -hmm. the gift of the child. And so it's coming again to this recognition of the gift of our humanity uh, in its very being, in the nature of its very being, that actually it sets us free from so many pressures and so many fears. Like, I, I don't know about you all, but it's hard work caring about what other people think <laughs> about me. You know, but if I can know in the deepest place of my heart uh, that my God looks at me as Adam first looked at Eve and he rejoices in me for my very being, for the gift of my very being, that Jesus actually became incarnate and can actually say, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, that we have the same humanity. I've so dignified the gift of the human person and I just, to show you how much I delight in you. Like if we can, if we know that that's eternal, uh, then who cares what other people think, think about us? You know, who, it's like the, they don't, what another thinks about me changes nothing, objectively speaking, about my identity, about who I am. It changes nothing. But who God thinks about me, my creator and my redeemer, this God who is in love with me, that changes everything. That allows me to receive my own self as I am, as gift. Yeah. The long answer. Yeah. Uh, sister, as you spoke, I was thinking about, um, I shared when we were gathering before we started, I worked at a crisis pregnancy center for a year and a half. It was the most amazing job I've ever had. I learned about every single chaplet that's ever been created. I don't know if you've heard of the chaplet to the shoulder wound of Christ, but there is such a chaplet. And so the work was so intense that I have really had to rely on, on the Lord. But I remember one particular um, couple came into our office and they were uh, energetic to say the least. So they come into the, the waiting room, James and Maria, and they're already arguing before they come back to meet with me. So Maria's there for a pregnancy test and I go and I see them and I'm like, oh, I don't know. Um, but they come back and we meet, we do a pregnancy test, Maria is pregnant. And I remember the first thing she said, which many women in that circumstance will say, was like, I cannot be a mother. Like, don't you see James? He's crazy. You know, we're arguing, this is not gonna work. <laughs> and, and I remember just saying to her, Maria, you know, you are already a mother. And I wish I could say that she received that news by giving me a hug or a high five or a yeah, girl, like she didn't, right? But, but there was this moment of, of awareness that I think that certainly awakened something in her. And so this, this couple, they had 
every kind of problem you could imagine. They had money problems, family problems, substance problems, you name it, right? And so coming to accept the pregnancy was challenging because they thought their lives were worthless. They had so many problems. And here is a baby, which is, you know, according to a certain calculation, another problem. And, and the women walked with us at our, our center for about nine months. And I'm not gonna say that each month was great, um, but she did deliver. And I remember when she came back and she, she brought the baby to meet us, she said, you know, this baby gave me a reason to hold it together. I'm not perfect but this baby gave me a reason to hold it together. So I think it certainly gives us a whole different perspective in thinking about the value of a human life, right? Because even the, the parents can always recognize and see themselves as valuable. Perhaps the world doesn't look at James and Maria as people who are valuable because they, they're not uh, contributing members of society, right? They're not, right? They were semi-employed, half-employed, undereducated. They had all those things to count against them, but yet the Lord graced them with this beautiful gift that, that did bear great fruit in their lives, so. Yeah, I mean, as a, as a father of two, a three-year-old and a five-month-old, I think about this all the time, the fact that, man, being a father is hard. I mean, being a mother is even harder, but being a father is really hard. I mean, it, you, can, you can almost see why the world would propose that having a child is a problem, but I, without any shadow of a doubt, I could say the joy far out multiplies the the suffering or the burden or whatever it is. And so the joy that I get when my son runs up to me and gives me a hug and says, good morning, Dada, like that stuff is like totally irreplaceable in my life. You know, like it gives me joy more than anything else mm-hmm. would. And yeah. so, um, yeah, I think seeing people, Sister, maybe you have something you wanted to add? You know, I, as you were te- speaking, I was just... <laughs> The image I got was the the joy of the of the fatherhood of God, you know, and that, yeah, just how beautifully you image that, and just taking delight in the gift of your children, even though they can't like do anything for you, right? The the beauty of the, yeah, God's and, and fatherhood you know, it, in one thing that really inspires me, and especially when I see Catholic families, and I mean, there's plenty of other families, but but. Uh, families that decide, you know, when they when they hear that they're having a child with genetic disorders or Down syndrome, to still bear that life and bring that life into existence. Because according to the world, such a child is totally a waste. You know, like they're not going to contribute to society. They're going to be a burden. You know, but you honestly talk to most of those families. Their joy has multiplied. Like the, their whole families have changed. Their siblings have come around those kids. I mean, the amount of joy that that a person, even if they're genetically disordered or any of these things, it it it, it can't it can't it far outweighs any of the the burden that a child could bring. So, it's a total shift where, right? Like the world proposes, this is a burden. This is a problem. Right, and the church also proposes that with the the poor person, our our life issues don't just stop at the the child in the womb, but it's the child outside the womb. It's the person that's on the street, um, you know, that's going through poverty. You know, am I being pro life when I am ignorant to their sufferings? Um, any thoughts, sister? I know you, you probably encounter so many people in such situations. Yeah, one, uh, one story that's coming to mind is um, this wonderful man, Michael. And I lived in Manhattan before I lived here. And I was uh, headed to Mass. And as usual, I was a little bit late, but in New York, you learn how to walk really fast. <laughs> so I was actually going to cross. I saw Michael, and he was kind of in army gear, and he had a little sign. He was very young. Um, and so I didn't have any money to give, and I felt bad about that, so I was going to uh, not cross the street and because uh, I didn't have anything to give him. And God said, uh, you can give him love. And so I, I walked over, and I introduced myself, and I found out actually that he was deaf. And so I know a very little bit of sign language, so I spelled my name, basically. He got so excited, but then realized that was all I got. <laughs> <laughs> And so it's like kind of like when he starts speaking Spanish, you know. Um, and so then I, he had a little board, though. So he started writing on it. We were writing back and forth. And I was like, gosh, I really got a mess. And I was like, you want to come with me to mass? 
And he, like Bartimaeus, jumped up. He was so excited. And so um, he starts walking, tells me his story. His dog had just died. You know, and like on the streets, it's just so lonely. So it was very sad for him. It was a very traumatic death. And so we were just talking back and forth. And we came and he sat with me in mass. You know, and he's, he can't hear anything, but he just cried. Like he just cried and he cried and just let his heart out before the Lord. And then um, on the way out, this man gave him $20. And uh, as we got up to go, he was outside begging for food, had a little sign, everything. He takes that $20, and he puts it in the poor box. And then we start walking back, and, uh, and we're, like, riding back and forth. And um, I go inside to get him some resources and some food and water. And another sister comes out, and he said, um, he asked her if she knew me, you know, we dressed the same. <laughs> so she said yes, couldn't deny it. And, uh, and he said, she really loves me, right? And that's what God told me, you can give him love. And so then I came out, you know, and so uh, that's, what, that's what I thought, you know, you can give him love. So I came out and I gave him the resources. And, um, and as he was saying goodbye, he took off his backpack, which had his tent. So for a poor person, the tent is their home. And he gives it to me. There I am standing in front of this large convent where I sleep every night on a bed. And he gives me his home. And I said, God is with you. And he said, I know, he wrote, he's all I have left. That is a flourishing human person. That is a person with incredible dignity this capacity when touched by love to respond with such an incredible, uh, almost infinite love, you know, and an, an encounter capacity to encounter the living God uh, in a powerful way. That's, that's the beauty of the human person lived with such grace and dignity. You know, Richard, what about you? I feel like poverty is a hard thing to talk about, and it's really awkward um, for us because poverty seems to be an enduring part of the human experience across all time, at all places, for all different reasons. There are people who are poor, right? And we know our Lord says something along the lines of the poor you will always have with you. And so I know for myself as a Christian, and probably for many of you, it's really hard to wrap your mind around how do I respond to that. And so um, during the pandemic at our parish, um, our diverse, mostly black parish in Northwest Philadelphia, um, we, we started to receive uh, donations, um, a tremendous number of donations for people who, who wanted to share with the poor. They got these stimulus checks that they, they didn't really need. Their bills were all paid and all was well. And they said, well, we'll just send it into St. Raymond. Um, and, and quite a number of them said, I don't know any poor people. Nobody in my family's poor. I'm not friends with anyone poor. And, and that was really telling in a way because, you know, we know that part of what our Lord did in, in his own uh, life on earth was be with people. And so um, understanding the poor will always have with you, um, the part that really sticks out for me is the, the with you part, right? And that there is this call for closeness and togetherness, and so that we're not just called to, to give of our resources and say, okay, there is a poor person, let me go give them a sandwich. Um, oh, there is a poor person, let me give them some clothes, right? That, that our way of engaging and, and affirming and encountering the poor person um, is first of all recognizing that poverty is um, an accidental thing, right? It's something that's contingent on all different things that may not have anything to do with the person, right? The person may not have sinned and therefore are poor. It could be a million different things. And so when we recognize that, um, it becomes much easier for us to really recognize um, in that person, right, the same gift that we have received um, as those who may not be poor right now. And, and at our parish, we also have, um, we have a, a residence that is in the old convent building that houses folks who had been on the streets. And in order to get in that particular building, you have to have been very sick on the street, like 15 plus years of like living on the street, and usually with some medical um, issues. And one of the great joys of my own life 
has just been befriending people, right? Just making lunch and eating lunch together. And their behaviors are not like my behaviors. Like I learned that a lot of folks prefer soft tacos because of a dental issue that I never even thought about, right? And so there's all these ways that my, our lives are enriched. And so I think um, as Christians, just really being creative about how we might encounter the poor and not simply serve them for the sake of ourselves feeling like we've done, you know, the, the good and the righteous Christian thing. So yeah. that's what I'd say. Yeah. So Lumen Vitae, we do some work in Haiti um, with, with kids who are really living on less than a dollar, two dollars a day. And it's interesting, we, we do a ton of mission trips with Jesus Youth. And so usually people go on a mission trip and immediately all of the solutions come to mind, like this model of getting people to work and this this system, you know, what they need is th these kind of jobs, garment factories, X, Y, Z. You know, I and I, and I thought that was probably it too. You know, for me it was, oh, education as a system. You know, and obviously education has a value, but um, when I moved there and you go and visit families, you realize that, right, it's so easy to just look at poor people as poor people, you know, quote unquote, and who are in need of such a system. But each person is so unique, unrepeatable, has such a story behind them. And when you go into their houses and you talk to them and you pray with them and you just be present to them, you know, there's so many times where, you know, they would ask for something and I honestly wouldn't be able to give it to them, but there was absolutely no love lost, you know, because what, what they needed more than anything was just me, us. Like, obviously, we, we have a responsibility as Christians to try to fill in the gaps and, and, and we should eliminate the scandal of poverty, but the greatest gift I could give to any person who suffers under material poverty, spiritual poverty, you know, all of the above, is myself. Um, yeah, so as, as, as both people, you know, so kind of switching gears a, a tiny bit, but not really, um, we, we talked about this essence at the heart of a person. Um, and so a lot of times we think that something like gender is something that's accidental, like on like just a characteristic of who we are. But St. Edith Stein actually said that like for her, not for her, but what she believed is femininity, masculinity was part of this essential part of us, right? But when we look out into the world, we see an attack on, 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 on these things, femininity. You know, how do I, how do we uphold the great value and dignity that is meant for womanhood? I'll take the first step. <laughs> um, yeah, I think Edith Stein and John Paul II um, really ascribe a lot to uh, personalism and this, I, this knowledge, this truth that our bodies are very connected with our souls. You know, even St. Thomas Aquinas would say, you're not fully a human person in heaven until the resurrection of the body, pretty sure. <laughs> and so, um, so there's this deep interconnectedness between our bodies and our souls. And so when we talk about femininity and masculinity, it's not just about an outward appearance um, or structure in our body, but it's, it's actually part of our very being. And, and there's an intention behind that. So as we were talking about the nature of a thing, God gives a thing everything it needs in order to reach its fulfillment, right? In order to really flourish, right? And so uh, when that receives the proper cultivation, that's when it can produce the best apples, or that's when it can be a dog that jumps and licks your face and gets fur all over you, right? It's like when they really receive, uh, according to its what it was created for, um, the, the proper cultivation. And so if you look at those two things together, our bodies and our souls being connected, and it's very obvious that our bodies are um, 
in essence, the same, and yet they're different. They're very complementary. So John Paul II would really touch on this a lot, that actually our femininity and our masculinity is written into our bodies, and we can come to know a lot about what um, our particular gender, the gifts, the particular gifts and strengths entrusted to that um, is for by looking at our bodies. So like, for instance, a woman has a womb, and so she has this capacity to receive the life of another into her and to nurture that and to grow that life. And that's awesome. A man cannot do that. Like that, um, that capacity to have you, you know, an immortal soul in your body that's not your own is amazing, right? That's, and so he's given her the gifts uh, structurally in the body, but also in her heart of empathy, of sensitivity, of this um, relational, this, this tension. And it's not that men don't have those gifts, but they don't have them in the same way as women do. And then men have gifts that women don't have in the same way and degree. And that's intentional because together, see, we are meant for being together, being united as the Trinity is. Together, they form the perfect image of God. As, as John Paul II would say. And there's an incompleteness when we fall into this individualism of society and we can't understand ourselves without the other. And that's when we fall into the breakdown of, uh, of who we are as men and women is, is because we become so individualistic. Um, but when we learn how to live for the other and with the other, we actually realize that our gifts go together and they actually augment each other and they teach each other and they complement each other and it's a really good plan. It's a really good idea, and because uh, it was God's. <laughs> and um, if if we lose a sense of that, uh, then society really loses a lot, and we lose a lot in our own sense of being. And so you see that in our culture, where uh, not upholding the gift value of femininity again, this idea of receiving ourselves as gift in our very being, when we don't uphold that value, uh, society loses its heart. We don't, we, we haven't reverenced the gift and the power of femininity. And so you can see that reflected in our culture that has become not relational, but individualistic and task oriented rather than person and interrelated. And uh, the woman, I mean, she is incredible. She's incredible. And I remember when I was growing up, I loved soccer. Anybody? Soccer? Yeah. I loved soccer and uh, track, and I was a tomboy, and I hated pink, and I hated flowers, <laughs> and all that girly stuff. And I remember this time when I was, we were getting ready to make a trip to the Holy Land, and all of a sudden there come these, I went to public school, all of a sudden there come in these homeschool boys who want to carry the box for me and open the door and pour the water. And at first I was like, I can do it. <laughs> I'm strong, look at me. Right? And then, but they were so persistent. They were so persistent and they would order for you. You know, and then in the Hoyland, you actually have to wear skirts um, past your knees. And so I started wearing skirts with flowers. And uh, I discovered that I am awesome. <laughs> that my femininity is a gift that I deserve to be reverenced. When I went on this missionary walk, people actually, the guys would stand on the outside so that if a car came, they'd get hit first. I mean, I'm worth dying for. Amen, Jesus? Amen? I'm worth dying for. And so that brought that actually being treated, because now men are afraid to do that, right? They're afraid to be men. Um, and, but, to, but when somebody had the courage to treat, that brought my femininity alive, and I felt more myself. And then that somehow created this capacity in me to be more compassionate, to be more empathetic, to live in a flourishing way. And then I began to teach my friends mm -hmm. how to open the doors. <laughs> It was so fun. And then they would like be with my girlfriends who um, wouldn't let them carry. I remember this one time, this guy was walking with this girl and uh, they were arguing about something. And they come up to me and he goes, can you tell her to let me carry her books? And I go, Teresa, and she sighs and she gives them her books, <laughs> right? And so it's like, we actually have to re be retaught like how to live our different roles. But when we do, then men grow in their capacity to protect and to give and to provide and to really reverence the gift of the human person. And then there isn't the same kind of violence, right? Because they've learned to treasure her. And then the woman 
she learns about her own dignity and her own gifts, and so she's able to let them flourish in her and then put them at the service of the culture. And then as she respects herself, um, she'll hold that standard, and, and that will heal a lot of the, of the terrible, we, you know, in our mission we see a lot of just the terrible abuses of women, um, actually really emotional and psychological, not just physical, but also physical. Um, but as women learn their own dignity, uh, then they know that they don't deserve that, and, and they can actually hold their ground more and not accept it. Yeah, the one thing that I was thinking about when you spoke and in preparation for our time together is that I feel like often, um, even the way that we talk about what it means to be woman um, is preoccupied with the exterior signs. And so, you know, I think there are women um, who are not uh, girly, but very much feminine, right? And so I, I, I have the great pleasure of being mentored by many women like that who are the mother of six children, but they take care of all the electrical wiring in their house, <laughs> and they've got, they, they camp, and they're sharpshooters. And I remember just being exposed to that way of being fully woman was freeing for me um, because I, I like to wear dresses, but there are many other things that are girly that I'm like, well, that's not really me. And I think for younger women, when you're trying to figure out how am I called to be authentically woman now, um, it's important to really focus on the essentials, as Sister pointed out, right, so that, that we are called um, to be like a radical helper, right? Like what a great gift that like when you come into a room, like you are the blessing in your friendships and in your other interpersonal relationships in your workplace. And so that's just something that um, I think has just been a great help for me as somebody who I, I think I'm girly to a degree, um, but, but certainly knowing that authentic femininity is really rooted in the essential stuff and not the accidental, so. Yeah, I think, you know, part of it is, you know, it's so easy to think that we have to fit into particular stereotypes. But, Sister, you, you said this earlier when we were sharing, it's like, really, once we see ourselves, myself, as a gift, and learn to accept who I am as a gift, then I, I can then be, a, my masculinity can be a gift to others, you know, you know, it's amazing just, I grew up in a house with three guys, three boys, three brothers, and you know, when I got married, it was honestly kind of healing for me just to be married to my wife and just really be in awe of everything that woman is. Um, and, and it's funny, like, my kids love me, I promise, but in the middle of the night, like, my wife is just who they want, you know, and, and it's who brings joy to their heart. It's who brings consolation to their sadness. Um, and there's just such a, a gift of this world that is the woman that I feel like we have not, like, accepted or learned or, and it's, like, sad. Mm -hmm. You know, I get sad mm -hmm. about it because the woman is so beautiful, like beyond just the exteriors, but at the core of who they are, not based on a stereotype, but just based on who they are as a gift. It's kind of like, you know, as you're talking, it reminds me of Adam and Eve before the fall, where, where Eve is brought to Adam and he is just moved with pure delight in her being. She hasn't yet done anything Right, but just seeing, and at, and at that point, because of their knowledge, like he could see the whole creative beauty of who she is, and he and he wanted to protect that and guard that treasure, you know, and then and then she wanted to give that treasure to him, and so it's this capacity again. What I think the the primary one of the primary gifts of woman, according to JP two, is um, and the Bible, is her capacity to receive, right? This capacity to just um, receive another into our heart, to receive the truths of the faith, to receive love, and then to uh, integrate it into her being, and then as a response, offer her own gifts as, as a love. So this, this receptivity and this docility and this trust um, is, a, is part of the essential qualities that women actually 
gives as a witness to man, um, and that can enkindle him. And, and but if we if we don't allow that because of our pride or or our really our fears um, to to flourish, uh, then all of society suffers greatly in this capacity to receive, and then it becomes all about achievement, right? Improving myself and doing and task oriented, and this deeply um, human relational receptive aspect of the human person, uh, is, it's difficult for it to really flourish. We have, um, in our mission, we served this awesome woman that I love. I, I consider her one of my dear friends. And um, she, she had been pressured by the father of her baby of, her, of one of her children uh, to have an abortion, and she, and she uh, this was before we knew her, and she suffered, and she was suicidal, um, and just went through deep darkness. And he kind of like had one of his friends like take her off to Vegas, and that was it, right? And then he was like, "I'll never do it again, Lana." So she was back with him, and then she got pregnant again, and again uh, he was trying to coerce her into having an abortion. And um, she and I were kind of like, I didn't know how this one was. We were just a complete opposite, seemingly opposite spectrums of ideas. <laughs> about how things should be and how society should be. Um, but she found a, a safe place in this particular area with us. And so she didn't know what she was going to do for um, most of uh, a large part of her pregnancy. And this pressure, right, from, from the father of a baby, it's just, when you talk about abuse of women, uh, that's abortion. It's a real violence against women. And she is the one that suffers. Um, the child obviously loses, loses the life, but the woman really suffers deeply. And, um, and it's a real way of men to often uh, to manipulate and, and to like cover up their, their sins, actually. It's, I've been walking with women for eight years now, and uh, hands down, it is, it is so sad what they suffer. So we were walking with her, you know, and she was having this really heavy pressure, and she's like, I don't know about this father, maybe, like, I don't want to have a child with him. And then she was actually very successful and good at what she did. And she said, um, work is what makes me happy. Like, I want to be successful. That's when I feel alive. And, um, and I don't want to just be stuck at home, you know, with another child. She already had a child. Um, well, as I got to know her, she really, she really came alive. And I remember this one time I was in prayer, and I just saw this white flower. And I said to her, uh, I knew it was her. And I said, look, I know that um, most people would think that you're some kind of exotic flower from the Amazon. <laughs> but I see you as this pure white delicate flower. And uh, a couple of days later, she wrote back to me and she said, um, when she was with the father of her first child, he was very abusive. And she told him that she just wanted to be treated like a flower. And he laughed in her face. And from then on, she said that she felt like she had to be strong, and she had to fight for herself, and she had to protect herself, and she became hard, and she became, she became strong in one way. Um, and then she, she said in that moment, she realized, I'm delicate, and I just want to be treated like a flower. And that opened up her heart uh, to the deeper desires. She gave birth to a little girl, and this, I don't know that I have seen a happier mom or a mother who's like so in love with her child. And she is like doing all she can to work from home. She's taking classes on how to, how to child development. And she's just absolutely in love, in love with her year And she was like, I want to get out there and I want to tell the world they're all about like production. You got to be <laughs> successful. And like, she's like, it's all about being a mom. <laughs> like she just like the maternal, I mean, and it was like, she listened to society, right? We're like, this is what's going to make you happy. And this is like a woman has to fight. She's got to be strong. She's got to be successful. Like be, and then she, she's like, I just want to love. Like, I just, I want to love. I want to be a mother. I want to, that's what really brings me life. And she, and yes, you know, she's like, I don't know wants to tell the whole world the joy that she's discovered. That's so beautiful. Yeah, it's really awesome when people just uh, receive love and are loved. The walls come down, and their true selves are able. So if you, like, how to uphold women's dignity? Love them for what they are. Don't try to make them into something else, something they're not, but love. With love, teach them how to love themselves. 
That's the crisis, is that we don't love ourselves. We don't see ourselves as gift. You know, because people don't treat us that. We're told, we're told the truth, right? We're told the truth about women's power, women's rights, and all of this stuff, but we don't experience it in our culture. We don't experience the truth, and so our mind might say, like, yeah, I have, dig I have like, power and right and choice and all that, but my heart is like, I'm not seeing that. And so in the back of my mind, I don't believe it. And there's this little question, like, am I worth it? Am I loved? Am I, be am I beautiful? You know, because they need, we need the experience of it. And so give that woman, give her the experience so that she's a treasure, and it'll come alive in her. As we come to the close of this episode, any, any thoughts for Shara? Well, I guess I'll, well, first of all, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be with all of you. And like everyone else, I love the Sisters of Life, so I'm super excited to be on the couch with Sister Maeve. Um, I guess I would just leave uh, with these few thoughts. Um, you know, achievement is good, right? Um, and particularly for those of you who are women, um, it's not as if uh, we're suggesting that achievement is not good, that the Lord has not called you to set the world on fire, right? He very much desires for you to use your gifts well. But to recognize that, you know, you are more than just a body, or someone who can work really hard and get a lot of degrees or be really productive, um, that, that the Lord um, desires um, to be near you, right? And he desires eternity with you. And it sounds almost, you know, when you're in the weeds of it, trying to apply for jobs or med school or whatever, kind of like, okay, okay, yeah, the Lord loves me. But, but for you to just really sit with that and recognize that that is the, the foundation for your very existence and to allow that to uh, encourage you as you stay up all night studying or as you make decisions about how you are going to put forward your authentic self in the world. Um, so that's all I'll say. Sure. Maybe I'll just add, and probably from the masculine perspective is, you know, we're very naturally task-oriented, you know, project-driven, those kind of things is what kind of drives us. But when we are able to experience the more simple joys. And, and even if receptivity is naturally female, you know, Mother Mary was this amazing model of receptivity and is model for all of us and as men to grow in that receptivity because ultimately that's our receptivity to God, receptivity to others, um, you know, that will make us better men. Um, so yeah, Sister May, have any thoughts? I think um, just kind of going off of what you're both saying is that women have, uh, women and men both have unique gifts. And even um, within that, there's different gifts entrusted to different individuals. And, um, and so don't be afraid of your gift. And don't be afraid of the particular gifts you've been entrusted with. And whether you're called um, to, to being at home with the mother or called into the, to the workforce, don't allow that to make you into something that you're not, but really stay strong in the gifts that you've been entrusted with and, uh, and then learn from others. And then it's like together uh, we grow into a full flourishing human society. So it's this being with the other uh, that really brings us to life. Beautiful. Yeah, I'm just going to kind of end this episode with this scripture that I feel inspired to share with you. It's from the prophet Jeremiah. And just to kind of claim this for each and every single one of us to realize where our dignity lies from, um, the word of the Lord came to me thus, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I dedicated you. A prophet to the nations, I appointed you. And then Jeremiah says, ah, Lord God, I said, I know not how to speak. I am too young. But the Lord answered me, say, I am too, say not I am too young. To whomever I send you, you shall go. To whatever I command you, you shall speak. Have no fear before them, because I am with you to deliver you, says the Lord. And, you know, I, I just pray that we could all receive uh, that scripture, to receive those words of, of recognizing that we were a thought in God's eyes, in God's, in God's mind, 
even before a single second of your life in your mother's womb even came to be. And even before that moment, how precious and how wonderful you are and how much each one of us, male and female, are made for such great things that are not based on our output, that are not based on what you produce or results that you achieve in this world, but by the mere fact that you are you, that you are made in God's image and likeness. the true greatness of your own humanity.